well, as I already said, Happy New Year. Happy Epiphany Sunday. For most of you, you're thinking, Epiphany, what? What's the common meaning of the word Epiphany? So, if you walk into work tomorrow and someone says, I've had an Epiphany, what are they describing? I mean, just common use. Some kind of sudden revelation. What else? An aha moment. I heard something over here. A new insight, yeah. Often sparking some kind of action, some kind of response to this new information that they've received. Well, as I already said earlier, the Christian year, in the Christian year, Epiphany is the 12th day of Christmas. So anyone who's been singing along about turtle doves or Lords of Leaping or various things, you've actually been counting down the days to Epiphany Sunday and you didn't even know it. And you're welcome. Now you have that song going through your head through the rest of the week. The day commemorates the arrival of the Magi from the East. It signals the epiphany of Christ to the non-Jewish world, to the Gentile world, where he's been made known to them. Of course, the very familiar story is one we've heard over and over and over again through the holidays. We think of these three crowned individuals who are struggling into the West atop loaded camels. We always picture them as traveling at night, right? Because they're following a star. Hard to see during the day. And, you know, we've heard the story uh, read this morning. We even sang about it a little bit. Three kings who are actually probably astrologer priests, and there may have been as many as five or eight or, or just two. Oh, actually, we know now that there's four. There was four. Gary Larson cleared it up. Here's a little picture. There was four wise men. The caption you can't read at the bottom says, unbeknownst to most theologians, there was a fourth wise man. You know the answer, right? Who was turned away for bringing fruitcake. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, but the arrival of the Magi are central to the story of Christ's birth. And my question for us this morning is this. What does Epiphany tell us about God? You know, what does the arrival of these Magi, by the light of a star, reveal to us about the Creator Himself? Because that's the point of Epiphany. It provides this sudden flash of insight that changes lives. What does Epiphany tell us about God? Have you ever stopped and asked that question? I, I doubt it. I mean... We don't even think about epiphany. But have you ever ever stopped and just pulled back and asked your question? Like, what's with the star and the wise man? Like, what's with that story? Because I know to us it just seems normal to have three random dudes kind of emerge out of the dark on Christmas Eve holding gifts. Does that seem normal? It's a little odd, actually. And, 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 but the scene, we know the scene around Jesus that night wouldn't be right without three kind of fancy dudes. Even though we know, if you read the story, that it's likely they stumbled into town by the time Jesus was stumbling around as a toddler. But really, okay, God, why a star? And why these guys? What's going on here? Well, for the next three weeks, we're going to discover how much God loves Epiphany. We're going to start with this initial story of Epiphany, which kicks it off. And then we're going to look at two other Bible stories where God is creating Epiphany moments so that people's lives are changed. And could it be that, for us, by seeing how Epiphany works, that we might be more in tune with the one who loves to give them. That's our quest. So let's reflect together on this basic question. What does the use of a bright star in the heavens to attract these foreign magi tell us about God? And I invite you to think with me this morning, and I'll give you an opportunity to chime in in a little bit with some of your ideas. Well, the first thing that jumps out is that God plans for epiphany. I mean, just think about what it took to put together 
this stellar invitation. How exactly did that happen? You know, like, what did that take? I mean, what kind of stars had to align, quite literally, so that these guys could make it to the party on time? And as it turns out, they were probably 18 months late anyway. The creator of the very stars sets a course for their epiphany, potentially millions of years in advance. I mean, was it some spectacular conjunction of a number of planets that really stood out to them? Was it Jupiter looping through other constellations like a hand waving in front of an astrologer's face? Is that what's going on here? Did the Son of God send a comet? You know, throwing it so that it would arrive precisely at the same moment that he did, like a guy who plays catch with himself in his backyard. Or was it a supernova, this last brilliant gasp of a dying star heralding the arrival of the true morning star? We don't know. We don't know what it was. But what we do know is this. God had planned epiphany all along. He had it all planned out way in advance. That the God who created the world looked down the road and worked out in advance all the calculations and all the constellations so that these magi could get their epiphany. Let me ask you. Do you think that God still plots epiphany? Do you think he still plots epiphany? That God still works out the how, the when, the who. Well, if I move him here and if I, if I, you know, okay, yes, he'll lose his job. But think, then the family will move over there and then they'll meet these people. Oh, yes, then epiphany. Well, do you think God does that kind of thing? He, he works out in advance how he could possibly get in front of a woman or a man or a family so that they could have their opportunity to finally find Jesus? I think he does. I think he does. He planned for your epiphany. He did. He planned for that moment when you realized, like, oh my goodness, I've been looking at it all along, but I didn't realize that Jesus really is the real deal. He really is the king of the universe. He really is the son of God. He really died and rose again. I can't believe it. It's not just a fairy tale. It's a real dude. Did you know that? You walk around thinking, did you realize, have you been seeing the same thing I've been seeing? You know, that epiphany moment, that one. You remember it? Anyone remember there? Epiphany moment. God planned that out. That moment when our eyes got wide and we bowed our knees to Jesus and said, Jesus, you are real. You are it. I'm going to follow you. Or maybe for some of you, your epiphany is still coming. It's still out there in the future. and You're just exploring who Jesus is. Or you've been rolling around this community for a while. You've been touching base with a few folks. There's something in you you're searching for. You're not sure. You're trying to piece things together, kind of like these wise men. You're seeing different things. You're wondering what it means. And, 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 and your epiphany day is still to come. But you should know God's working on it. God plans for epiphany. Well, what's next? Quite obviously, God extends epiphany to outsiders. I mean, that's kind of, you know, the story. He extends epiphany to those who are seemingly out of reach. He really, really cares for those who are far, far away. God really cares for people who are from different worlds, who speak different languages, who are part of different religions. God really, really cares for them. And this reveals so much about the heart of God. 
I mean, yes, as we read the story, the Christmas story, we see how God extended Epiphany to shepherds in the fields nearby. That's true. But don't miss God's heart to create Epiphany moments, not only for people who are nearby, who had easy access, but for people who are far away, who are so removed from the touch and the smell and the sight and the sounds of those players on that night in Bethlehem that none of them would have seen them coming. God extends epiphany to outsiders because God loves to reach people who are far away. People who are so out of touch. People who are beyond the vision of anyone who's thinking. He loves to reach those people and help them find and follow Jesus. God is a God of outsiders. He's the shepherd we sang about and we'll sing about it again who recklessly leaves the 99 to go in search of the one. Some of the legend that sprung up around the visit of the Magi and the art that surrounded that, um, it catches this outsider quality. Vicente Gill was one of many artists, he was in the 15th century, who captured the three Magi representing the known world. There's a picture of it. The known world at the time, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And it's inaccurate as far as that goes in literal terms, but it's true in such a larger sense because it captures how this epiphany of Jesus is for the whole world. We see it actually in the display, um, just below the screen, the display of the Magi and the Nativity right there. In the picture, we see Balthazar up there on the right. These names came later. It's not part of the biblical text. But the Balthazar, the youngest of the Magi, he's bearing frankincense and he represents Africa. He's down here in the center in our, in our display. On the left, we have the middle-aged Casper, who is bearing gold and represents Asia. And then on his knees in front is Melchior, who is the oldest and bears myrrh, representing Europe. All the world standing in awe before the epiphany of God in Christ. And when we read the whole story, if you've you know, started into Genesis, if you, if you begin to piece together some of the story that we read in the Bible, we discover that God's heart has always been for the long lost. It's always been for the forgotten. It's always been from the people that are way out there that have no chance at all right from the very start. That God planned epiphany for the world before the curtain on history had even been opened. And then God initiates epiphany all along the way through creation after the fall in the early days. Think of Abraham receiving this epiphany, God speaking to him, calling him to go and promising to do amazing things through him, how God reached out to Abraham because he wanted to reach out to the world through Abraham in Jesus Christ. God always pursues those who are far away so he can bring them in close. I mean, I love hearing your stories. I look out at you and I know some of your stories fairly well. I know other stories lesser. But I know the stories of some of you. I love to hear the stories of how God <laughs> chased you down. How God didn't give up on you and how you may have resisted God for decades. You may have walked away distracted, ignored. You may have been, you know, just not interested at all. And somehow God stuck with you, worked with you, setting up all that time your epiphany moment and then hearing the story of how you came to believe that Jesus was real and you decided to follow him and receive his goodness and grace into into your life. I love look, looking back at past generations. Um, maybe maybe your grandparents or your, your people that, you know, generations ago and how God worked in their lives patiently to bring epiphany. I mean, if you missed Nellie's story last week, you would have heard in her story, you know, a sick kid from Saskatchewan gets sent by doctors to Creston. Would God do that kind of thing? 
Well, apparently he did. Because that family comes to Creston, and on their first Sunday here, what happens? A family from a town that didn't have a Jesus-following church in it stumbled across the road at Highway Cabins into a little church called the Erickson Covenant Church, which was three years old at the time, 1942. And because of the welcome they received there, God set up their epiphany moment. Nellie talked about her epiphany moment when she was down at a youth rally in Spokane. I think it was 1948 or 49, Nellie? 48, thank you. Whew, my memory is almost there. Setting up your epiphany moment. But, but, but I don't want you to miss this. You look back at that and you see how God was at work and brought change to that whole family. Forever changed their trajectory. That's the kind of God who loves to create epiphany. I love reading missionary stories. I love reading how God works to bring epiphany to people who are far off the beaten track. And I love, I particularly love the many stories we hear of how God works through dreams and visions to reach Muslim people, men and women. How through dreams and vision, God sparks a desire, kind of like these magi, to go in search of something, Jesus, some, some meaning that, it, that is greater than they've been experiencing. And so we hear these stories of Muslims experiencing epiphany all the time and going on journeys and being called to places, maybe even immigrating to places like Canada and the U.S. where they discover for the first time that that ache and that epiphany and that call that's been placed into their lives by God has brought them, oh, look at that, next door neighbor to you. And we celebrate that God would do such a thing for us. Well, the Magi are the first fruits of this long line of outsiders hearing God's cosmic invitation and then coming to see Jesus for who he is. That brings me to my next point, which is very central to epiphany, and that is that God creates epiphany through accommodation. That is, by accommodating for our fallen frameworks, our misguided understandings, our shrunken ways. In short, you can think of it this way. Accommodation is God stooping down low and using baby talk. So that we can get what he's saying. This is huge. The Magi were Zoroastrian astrologer priests. I mean, think about that. Total pagans. Totally outside the story, so they thought. They may have been part of this esoteric group of early monotheists, sort of, but they were filled with a bunch of um, complex ideas about how the world worked and these sub-gods that were created and all that. And the Magi, they probably originated with the Persians, but they spread into other groups, kind of came a class of scientist, doctor, magician, poet, priests, all wrapped into one. They were the wise men of the ancient days. You know, in, if you've heard some of the stories of Daniel, some of you know the story really well, some of you, maybe it's fresh, but the guy got thrown into the lions, and uh, the, the three, other three boys who got thrown into the fire furnace, those guys, they were wise men. They were magi uh, in, in the country that they'd been exiled to. And magi were always looking for portents. They were always looking for omens, you know, in the sky or in the birds and how they flew. And, and they, were, they, were always, they were always seeking for, 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 for signs and everything from stars to sticks, looking to try to understand the world and how they should respond to it. And, don't miss this, knowing that that's how they thought, knowing that that's how they processed the world, knowing that that's the lens through which they viewed, God set it up so that he could use their expectations, their worldview, to convey the coming of Jesus. I think this is amazing. This says so much about the grace and the patience and the ingenuity of the Father. So much about his heart for lost 
people. So much about his heart for us that God is willing to stoop down low and use our words. That he's able to frame truth in our terms. That God isn't saying, look, learn the way I talk first. Use the words I'll give you. He doesn't say, come over to my way of thinking and then I'll tell you. He doesn't do that. God stoops down and begins to call us and woo us and connect with us and invite us using terms that we understand, words that we can comprehend. He reaches across culture and time and space and worldview and distance and sin and frailty and stupidity and superstition. He reaches across it all to reach us. The great church theologian John Calvin, who I rarely quote, calls this divine accommodation. That is, God accommodates to us so that he can speak to us. He does that through creation. He does that through history. He does that through our own minds and the things that we process. He does that through art. He does that through the Bible. He does that, of course, ultimately in Jesus Christ himself, that God accommodates himself to us. He stoops down to speak to us in our language. He uses our myths and our mistakes and most wonderfully comes and becomes one of us in Jesus Christ. The word made flesh, Jesus becoming human, is the ultimate act of divine accommodation. And the Father still does that today. By the Holy Spirit, he meets us right where we're at. He reaches into our worlds. He reaches into your world. He, he brings in a friend. He, he, he shows you the way. He uh, creates a whole moments to move you forward. He conveys his truth and his love to us. And this accommodation of God is what makes epiphany possible. What's what made the original epiphany possible? It what makes the ongoing epiphany possible. And without it, there'd be no way we could ever see God. There'd be no way we could ever get what's happening and, and, and be able to comprehend that there's anything going on that is, is relative to us. We wouldn't be able to understand our sin, our folly. We wouldn't be able to understand how loved we are, our purpose. Can I make a really practical connection about accommodation? God's accommodation to us shapes our accommodation to others. God models that for us. Think about it. It's why we work so hard as a global church through organizations like Wycliffe to to get the Bible translated into the mother tongues of every ethnic group in the world. And I hope someday Susanna, Dana's best friend and one of the vice presidents of Wycliffe in Canada, will preach here and share that more with us in the future. But this this is why we do it. We believe that the language in which we were created and grew up in, it ministers to us in a powerful way to hear God's story in our mother tongue as a powerful way of reaching us. And that's, that's a beautiful way that we accommodate. We don't demand that people learn, Lord help us, English or Greek or Hebrew. Aren't you thankful? You don't have to learn Greek and Hebrew to understand what God's doing. Thank God for translation. That's why we work so hard to understand the, the worldview and the culture of people who are different than us. People who are around us, maybe people who are on our street, people we interact with at work or online. This also explains why, as Jesus' people, we accommodate ourselves by, by, you know, when we're helping someone find and follow Jesus, we, we choose words that make sense to them. We don't, we don't use words that are all like insider speak, you know? People are like, what are you talking about? No, we use words that connect with them and are, are real. We, we tell stories that connect. We attend parties with friends. We, we try to serve people in practical ways, just like Jesus did. We meet people where they're at. Now, it's one of the reasons why I, just to give you a little yeah, insight, uh, it's one reason I, when I'm speaking on a Sunday morning, I try to use everyday words. 
instead of a bunch of special Christian words. Now, I don't always succeed. I realize that. But I try not to go for those easy Christian words that some of you would understand and some would be like, what? That incomprehensible guy. So I try to make, you know, I try to accommodate. I just be in, just open it up, being honest here. I think accommodation is critical because God accommodated to me. I'm going to accommodate to others because God accommodates to us. We accommodate for the sake of others finding and following Jesus. Well, God creates epiphany through accommodation. And we can just say, thank you, Father, for that kind of humility and grace. You thank you, Jesus. Accommodation, wow. For him, for you, Jesus, it meant coming one of us. Like, wow. And Holy Spirit, forgiving us the eyes to see. Thank you for epiphany. Well, and all this comes together to show us that God delights in epiphany. He's eager for people to find him. He's always calling. He's always putting out clues. He's always making epiphany possible. The Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, they delight in epiphany. God loves to pull back the curtain and say, I'm right here in front of you all the time and you didn't know it. Creation's always pointing at him. The Spirit is always calling, always setting up appointments, always, always creating encounters. The Father loves to make a big reveal. In some ways, God is like a child who loves to play hide and seek but won't actually wait long enough for anyone to really look for him. You know that kid? Go and hide. And you just enter in the room and they bounce out from behind the curtain and say, You found me! I'm here! That's God. He loves it. He loves showing himself. He loves revealing himself. He loves it when people come and seek and they find him. He's not playing hide-and-seek in a negative way. He's not like one of those kids. You, you don't find him until three weeks later. They're malnourished and dehydrated. But, bah, they won the game. That's not God. Sometimes we think that, but that's not true. He loves it. You know, the father was smiling when the Magi started to put things together. You know, that day when they went, yeah, 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 come over here. Did you see what I saw last night? And they started to put things together because what they were seeing in the heavens was different than anything they'd seen before in such a way that it, it, it started to evoke a response in them. Like, I don't know how many other times these guys had traveled in response to omens and portents and things in the stars. Who knows? But this one is significant enough that they traveled. They responded. I think the father was just smiling as he saw their minds, their big heads start working on this problem. I think the father laughed to watch them stumbling toward Bethlehem, not having any clue of what they were really going to find. Having no idea how this epiphany would change their lives. I think the father clapped his hands in delight when these guys on camels pulled up in front of the little king's house. And Jesus toddled out to them, you know. Waved. The one who created the very star that drew them. They held him in their arms. (laughs) He does the same for us, you know. He delights in epiphany. He delights in your epiphany. He delights in the day that you realized, oh, it all makes sense now. He delights to reveal himself to us. Well, we got a little time. I'd love to hear what you think. What else does the star tell you? The fact that God will use a star to attract magi, what does it tell you about God? I'd love to hear some of your thoughts. Shout it out or a comment you want to make or a question. Go ahead. Throw it out to me. He enjoys seeing us enjoy beauty. Absolutely. Yeah. 
and, and start making those connections. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's a great connection. Yeah. They were old age, though, those guys. Yeah, for, oh, sorry, for the podcast, uh, just because people listen to this later, just to comment that think of unreached people, it's like modern-day New Age people, how God still loves them and is reaching out to them and, and creating them a desire to seek and find him. Yeah, good. Other, other comments? Thoughts? What does it tell you? Say again, Shannon? Shines bright. Shines bright. That's right. He does shine bright. Mm. that's right the poor and the rich the elite in one sense elite in another sense like unreached but like yeah contrast them with the shepherds right there's just so much contrast going on god cares for them all reaches them all that's beautiful thank you other things Uh, karen Yeah, or, or at least for them it was. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if others saw it and didn't. That's cool, you know, kind of like me when I go out at night. I go, well, this is amazing. I have no idea what it is. But, <laughs> but they saw something definite. It caused action in them. I love it. Anyone else? What does it, what does it mean for you? Oh, great. Great. So the comment is that God has a plan and loves to leave these clues and see us discovering and coming along and then experiencing the delight of epiphany ourselves as we realize where this has all been leading. That's great. That's great. Jerry. Finding and growing in God is a journey. It's a beautiful metaphor, the metaphor of these magi going on this who knows how far kind of journey to come and find. And then, and then even the, you know, we didn't get into it today, but they show up at Jerusalem and they, they don't really know where they are or where to go and they get more direction and go home another route so they didn't get to retrace their steps, which, let's be honest, would have been easier. It's a journey, a beautiful, beautiful metaphor. Let's wrap it up. The working definition of epiphany, one working definition is a surprising illumination that results in life change. And that's right. The life change is the point of this epiphany of God in Christ. Let me ask you to reflect on how has the epiphany of Jesus changed your life? Maybe this is a good way of thinking of it. What is no longer true of you? What's no longer true of the way you think, of your understanding of life? What's no longer true of your relationships? What's no longer true of the way you think about your work or your money or your pride because of the epiphany of Jesus? What's no longer true of you? And then, also, what is now true of you? What's now true about your destiny? What's now true about your way of seeing the world, your your way of viewing others? What's 
What's now true of your, your heritage and, and the things you're giving to the next generation? What's now true of you because of the epiphany of Jesus? What's no longer true? What's now true? For the Magi, we can only imagine. I mean, we don't have the whole story, right? They kind of come out of the dark and then they leave. But one of our poets, T.S. Eliot, captured it beautifully in one of my favorites, The Journey of the Magi, where he depicts their story and their reflection on, on Epiphany in mixed terms. He concludes his famous poem with the question, Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. For the wise men and for us, the epiphany of Jesus really does change things forever. We now live in a different light. We see the world in a different perspective. And while that is a birth and beautiful, it also is a death and hard. The Magi returned home and they were no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. They had now set themselves, God had set them on a new life course. They had experienced something that changed forever what they would see and experience. And could it be the same for us? Eliot is on to something true here. The good news, which we often call in Christian circles, here's one of those special words that I rarely use, the gospel, just means good news. The gospel, the good news, is made known through the epiphany of Jesus as both a birth and a death. The birth of God's own son, for sure, come to save us through his death, his death on our behalf. The birth of new life for anyone who will place their trust in this baby king, in this Jesus, which signals a death to our own way of living and thinking, our own way of being, our own way of plotting life, our own way of worshiping or working or striving. This is a new birth for sure, but it sets that struggle, even death itself, the death that's around us, the death that we have to experience as we take up our cross and follow Jesus. It sets it now in a whole new light. In fact, in a resurrection light. God has come to us in Christ. He's revealed himself to us in the birth of Jesus. He's made himself known to us in such a way that we can see and hear and receive and follow Jesus. This is the good news, the gospel that Christians are always going on about. That God became human, that he took on flesh, that he spoke our language, that he used in an astonishingly graceful way. He used our ways and our truths and our lives to convey in Jesus the way, the truth, and the life. God loves creating epiphany moments for people far away and for people near, for people out of touch and for people right around the corner. What a God. Well, I think there's two responses as we close today. The first one is I challenge you, invite you, compel you, ask you, pray for epiphany. Pray, pray for it. Like, pray that epiphany would happen in the lives of your neighbors and friends. Pray for epiphany, pray for epiphany in the lives of your kids or grandkids. 
Pray for epiphany in, in the people that you work with or you go to school with or you've befriended online. Pray that God would bring people into their lives and, and, and create opportunities where they can come to realize who Jesus really is and experience the kind of life change that comes from epiphany. Be praying for neighbors and friends. Be praying for people that are coming from other countries. Be praying that they'll be plopped down right beside a follower of Jesus who will be one of the ways they receive their epiphany moment. Pray for Buddhists and Hindus and Sikhs and Muslims. Pray for your next-door neighbor who's forgotten faith altogether. Let's pray for epiphany. And then, in closing, I'll invite the team to come up. We want to also praise God for his epiphany to us in Christ. To give praise to him. To realize that he is the one who is willing to... I love the words of this song. You know, there's no mountain he won't climb up, right? No wall he won't tear down. Coming after us. This reckless love of a God who would leave 99 behind in search of just one, in search of you, in search of me, in search of many other ones.